Hi there, and welcome to a different way of seeing. Have you ever wondered how a disabled person lives their life? Join our host, Lois Drachen, as she chats to people about work, education, travel, sport, the arts, and leisure, and the tools and techniques they use to live their lives with the disability. And now, on with the show. Hi there, and welcome to this episode of A Different Way of Seeing, a podcast where we talk all things disability. I'm your host, Lois Strachan. In our last interview with Dr. Michelle Boerter, we had a short conversation about the way characters with disabilities are represented in literature. And at the time, I said, oh, that sounds like a topic that I would like to investigate further. And that's what we're going to be doing today with friend, colleague, and friend, fellow author, Elizabeth Sammons. Elizabeth, welcome to the podcast. It is great to have you with us today. Well, it is lovely to be here across six time zones and two continents and a, and a hemisphere. <laughs> That's true. We could almost not be further apart in the world. So just for the listeners, whereabouts are you today? Today, I am in Lakeland, Florida, which is in right in the middle of the, the peninsula going down. And currently going into spring? Into spring, although Florida doesn't really have much of a winter if you, you know, can compare it to most places in the world. That's well, I suppose living in Cape Town, I kind of have the same experience. <laughs> so let's get back to the point. Elizabeth, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your story, just to give a background to who you are and what your background is? Sure. Uh, and my my written bio does begin with this sentence. It says, when Elizabeth was born, doctors told her parents to put her in an institution. She was blind and unresponsive to normal stimuli. And I thank my mother and father, and I thank God that I was not institutionalized. Uh, my parents, my mother was a nurse, my father was a librarian, and uh, they really raised me with a sense of curiosity, exploring nature, a sense of wonder, uh, going regularly to a church, and a sense of literature, uh, reading me so many classics. Uh, so I was really, I grew up really steeped in a mixture of a very classical literature and scripture. I was also steeped in a lot of international guests. This was a very small town, but my mother had come from a military family and moved all around. And her brother was still in the army, I'm sorry, Air Force. And we had visitors from Japan, from the Netherlands, from Germany, from Turkey. We had college students from my father's campus from all over the world. So I was exposed to a lot of cultures growing up, and I just loved that. Um, went to college, ended up with a master's degree in journalism. Uh, I was able to go on to work in the then Soviet Union. We'll talk a little more about that later. 
um, and serve in Peace Corps, which is a volunteer government-sponsored uh, uh, program to allow Americans to go to other countries and assist. And uh, for some nonprofit organizations, uh, I became an interpreter, uh, lots of writing along the way, mostly journalistic. But then I came back to the USA um, when I was about in my early 30s with uh, the end of a marriage in Russia and with my daughter, who was three years old. Uh, luckily, I was able to get a good federal job uh, within about six months of coming home. And then uh, later went to a state job advocating for people with disabilities, particularly with employment. Um, and I did that for a number of years uh, until 2018. And my husband, my second husband, at that point, retired from his position and talked me into leaving my position. But I am still uh, really devoting my time that I might have devoted before to my work. Uh, to creative writing and to advocacy and to trying to encourage other people working in the arts and working with with people with disabilities. So it's been kind of a long and twisting road, but an interesting road in my life. It certainly sounds that way. And there's so many different directions that I could take this interview or this conversation based on what you already shared with us. But I did say that we were wanting to talk about literature. So I mentioned that you are a fellow author. Tell, you, tell us a little bit about the writing that you've done. Sure. So like many writers, I began writing very early as a child. <laughs> Nothing that I would ever show anyone. But... <laughs> uh, but you know, and I chose journalism both because of the writing and the curiosity involved. I was always just so curious. But in terms of the uh, adult, more major writing that I've done, I have one novel that I've published, and this is a self-published novel, the title of which is The Lyra and the Cross, L-Y-R-A. Uh, and this novel is set in Greco-Roman times, uh, in Greece and in Israel. Uh, and it talks about a pair of friends who actually appear in the New Testament, uh, Stephen and Paul. Uh, there's a Greek tradition that these two men were blood relatives, which is not a tradition that is known in the West. But I took this tradition and formed their friendship in context of the Greco-Roman conflicts and the political events happening in the world of Israel at the time, and ask myself, how can two friends be so divided by faith that ultimately one of them decides that the other can no longer live? So yes, it is a little bit of a heavy book, a little bit of a heavy question, but I felt like it was an important question to talk about. And again, I thank my father for the love of classics, which just allowed me to delve into the things I remembered and uh, of course, doing a little bit of elbow grease and research too, but uh, to write a book where I felt like it was reflecting that world the way I hope that that world saw itself, not the way a 21st century, you know, female journalist would necessarily see it. Um, that's the book that I've published. I have two more full-length manuscripts that I'm looking to publish. Um, I said I would talk to you a little bit more 
about my work in the Soviet Union. One of these is a nonfiction manuscript called American on Display. And uh, particularly in this time, I think this is important. We, in the United States for over 30 years, there were cultural exchange exhibits that went to the then USSR. And those exhibits were goodwill exhibits from the American public to the Soviet public. And I had the privilege of being a guide, aka a cultural ambassador, on the final exhibit that went to the then USSR, visited three very, very different cities. Uh, and I kept a daily journal while I was there. I took my little portable manual typewriter, typed out every morning after the day that I was describing and was able to send that home in diplomatic posts. So I had no fear or minimal fear of whatever I wrote being censored or my subjects being uh, harassed because of receiving word that they had been written about. Um, 30 years later, literally after the passing of my father, my daughter dusted off these five volumes. I wrote, you know, three, four, five, six pages every day looked at it and said, Mom, you really need to go over this again and you really need to publish it. So I did digitalize this manuscript, which was a job in itself, but had some help from friends. And after I did that, I went through the journal and selected excerpts uh, and passages that I hope will be of great interest to people today, especially about the amazing people that I met on this exhibit, because literally we had hundreds of thousands of people coming to that show and people asking us questions and then people wanting to have a relationship with us, inviting us home, uh, you know, smuggling me into a communist party training center, walking up a mountain with 821 steps, you know, things that just you would never be able to do as a tourist uh, that were just amazing. And I'm so grateful to have had that opportunity and I want the public to know about this. So. That's one. The other manuscript, uh, again, very different. So I had the Roman Empire. I had the Soviet Empire. The other manuscript is what I would call about the genetic empire. It is, you don't know it in the beginning, but it's kind of a mystery of a young woman who believes she is very likely to inherit a horrible genetic condition that will lead to death. And her best friend, who has legitimate reasons to believe that this might not be the case. And she ends up uh, uncovering this family's history and some very, very different genetic reasons that some desperate acts were done under Hitler and were done later on. Uh, and the family ultimately finds out who they really are. And it is a, a dark and light road, but leading to some greater reconciliation and truth and understanding of who they really are and uh, facing the fears and facing the concerns about what may happen in their future. So that's my other manuscript. It is named With Best Intent. And I have one more book to write, and I'll just tell you a tiny bit about it. Um, I mentioned earlier that I have been an interpreter. The main character in this book will be an interpreter, not autobiographical. However, in all these books, of course, we use our experience. And this interpreter will come from Russia, uh, and she will become involved in something that ends up being a cult, 
but she doesn't realize that until she's in pretty deep. And it is going to raise some philosophical and religious questions of what is truth. And as an interpreter, when you know too much, what do you do? What is ethical to do? Because I've often faced that as an interpreter. Thank God, not in the stark terms that she will. But, uh, you know, it's always fun as a writer to take something and let it reverberate and grow and and develop in your mind. So I'm, I'm working on that. And I hope to set that in the near future. So I'm going to have 2000 years ago, uh, 1990s, and hopefully future. And then I hope to be done with my long works and do a little more with poetry and short stories and things like that. Well, I certainly look forward to reading that one. I've had the opportunity of getting sneak peeks into the others and of reading The Lyra and the Cross, which I absolutely loved. So I can't wait to see the new one as it, as it starts to emerge. So Thank we wish you. you success with that. So then as someone with a keen interest and a lot of experience and background in literature and classics, and someone who's worked within the disability sector. Mm-hmm. I want to just dig a little bit into the way that you see that persons with disabilities are represented in books, in literature, in fiction or nonfiction. Mm-hmm. How are we as a community seen in books? Okay, and I've I've done a little bit of thought on this, and I'm I'm looking forward to talking about it. Before I do, I want to make two book recommendations for people who are interested in digging more deeply with this. And they're both pretty recent books. But um, Elsa Jennison, who is a deaf-blind writer, published a book last year called Being Seen. Uh, she is a media uh, specialist and talks a lot about. Uh, movies and sitcoms and television and uh, not as much about books, but being seen as a very interesting book when it comes to talking about images of disability. The other is um, Leona Godin, who wrote the book There, T-H-E-R-E, Their Plant Eyes. And that is more of a, a representations of blindness in literature. So Their Plant Eyes by... Leona Godin and Being Seen by Elsa Jenison are wonderful books, but I am going to unashamedly quote from a much earlier uh, speech that was given by a gentleman named Kenneth Jernigan. Uh, He was president of National Federation of the Blind, and uh, every year he would give a major kind of a, a address to the blindness public. And in 1974, already, so almost 50 years ago, He gave an entire speech about blindness in literature, and I'm going to kind of focus on that with basically nine categories, Uh, and I'm going to basically quote these, but I'm going to give my own examples. So he said that there are very few just natural examples of disability and blindness in literature. One of the ways that it's often represented is being compensatory or miraculous, and we've all heard of, you know, blind seers, blind prophets. Um, and from classical literature till now. So that is one way. Uh, another way is total tragedy. Uh, and again, I'm going to refer to scripture and classical literature. Samson in the Bible, who had been betrayed by his lover Delilah, and when he's captured, they, they after they cut off his hair where his strength was, they blind him. And so he's, and they put him to 
using his great strength to to grind wheat, pulling pulling these heavy wheels. So again, tragedy, uh, foolishness or helplessness. Uh, a great example of that that you just have to laugh even though you cringe uh, when uh, Hermes was stealing the three the apple the the apples of Hesperides from the the three sisters. They only had one eye and one tooth among them. And so he was able to have one of the sisters look at him with the one eye while one of the other sisters had the apples of Hesperides and he stole them from her hand and they couldn't find you know, him because only the one had the eye. Uh, blindness is also you know, often represented as evil. And when we read Treasure Island, uh, you know, the captain of the ship is the evil Captain Pew. You always hear him coming with his cane, tap, 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 this evil blind man. Uh, sometimes blindness or disability, but particularly blindness, is uh, represented as virtue or innocence. And if we take Andre Gide's uh, Pastoral Symphony, where a pastor finds this filthy little blind girl who's been abandoned, and she knows nothing of life and nothing of anything, and he decides, oh, I can imprint, you know, all of these, I can imprint scripture and virtue on this kind of a tabula rasa this 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 empty blackboard girl of course it ends in in tragedy uh blindness is often uh represented also as punishment and again going <laughs> my beloved classical literature but oedipus rex the king uh when he finds out that he has murdered his father and slept with his mother he he goes in and he stabs his eyes out he's like and i i have to be punished even though i didn't mean to do this uh, and blindness being one of the most severe punishments uh, that he could put upon himself. Um, another uh, way of representing is sort of this dehumanization or just abnormality. Um, I don't think we have to look too hard to find examples of that in 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 lots of places and. Uh, I, I couldn't think of one specific to what we were saying, but you know, it's just, it's just simple to think it's it's not very normal. In fact, well, Ray, Raymond Carver in the story The Cathedral talks about uh, a man who comes in and and kind of asks, "What is a cathedral like?" And he, the, the narrator, has never really met a blind man before, feels very awkward, and finally kind of uses his hand to draw a cathedral. Uh, and try to show this very, what he sees as a very abnormal, strange man, what it could look like. There's lots more in that story. I'm, I'm short shrifting it there. But uh, uh, another uh, way of representing disability is purification. Uh, I'm not blind, but an example that I think many of us would, would think of in that is uh, when Charles Dickens in Christmas Carol talks about Tiny Tim, kind of the God... God bless us, everyone. You know, this person kind of see no evil, hear no evil. Doesn't matter that I have a disability. And we also sort of see it in the way some musicians are portrayed. Uh, like, you know, Stevie Wonder, for example, you know, the Wonder Kid, and just that kind of awe that society stands in. And the final, uh, again, what Kenneth, Kenneth Jernigan talks about uh, is... Uh, blindness or disability as you know symbol or parable uh you know you hear about the three blind men going in and they try to discover the elephant you know one of them touches the trunk one of them touches the tail one of them touches the tusk that none of them can have this total view 
So there are a lot of ways of representing disability and blindness in particular in literature. And again, a huge nod to the late Mr. Jernigan for having defined those so well and to the authors that I mentioned earlier for doing deeper research into those. But none of these are necessarily true. So I I would say there's a lot of uh, work to do. It's interesting that most of the examples that you used there were drawn from classics, but I think if we look at characters from more recent novels, more recent books, I'd say they're pretty much as as they are depicted there from the classics as well. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. not certain we've seen much shift in the depiction of disability and we're looking particularly here at blindness I think agreed I think more broadly at disability I I would say that it's probably the same across the spectrum of disabilities why is this problematic though I'm going to answer your question um and I'd like to add a little something that I didn't have in the notes here as well but um it's problematic simply because it isn't true I mean if 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 all people of a certain race are represented as a stereotype, we get uptight about that. You know, if all people from a certain country are depicted in a certain way, people talk about that and, and, and they complain about that and they, they, they try to do something about that. Um, people reading are assuming that there's a certain amount of truth in what, what writers say. And if they haven't had contact with people with blindness or other disabilities, they're going to take on face value, what a lot of these authors say, even whether consciously or unconsciously. And let me just mention, <clears throat> there was one book that came out in the early 50s by, by a blind author named Jacob Torsky. And the name of that book was The Face of the Deep. Um, it was set in a blind school with five characters who all graduated or were kicked out, one or the other, from the school. And it's set from the late 1930s to the post-World War II era in the United States. And it's each one of those people, you know, there's a really successful one. There's a, you know, who becomes a professor who is actually obviously the author. There's one who is, uh, you know, becomes a, uh, a successful entrepreneur, but kind of using people. And then there are three who don't do well at all. And the final scene is one of them who is uh, selling pencils and, and begging. This book was never a success. And I think that one reason was it was just too painful for people to read this. They didn't want to see how society treated people with disabilities. And so a challenge that I would put to my fellow writers and thinkers is how can we make an image that is truthful and yet one that the public can have compassion and not shame in facing? I mean, we saw people in the Black community, and again, I apologize, I have to use the United States, not South Africa as an example here, because it's the literature I know better, but you know, you had people like like Richard Wright, um, like uh, you know, other other black writers in the fifties and sixties who who represented black people in society in a way that white people could read and be more compassionate and not brushing it off. So it's so important, you know, we can be catalysts for change as artists, and we have to try to make sure that we are 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 conscious of that in, in the images that we promote of anyone. It's, it's interesting because J. 
just going back to the interview that I did with um, Dr. Michelle Boerter in my previous episode, she was saying that from the reading that she's done, she also finds that often characters with disabilities are either seen in a very inspirational way or in a very tragic way and that there's no middle ground Mm -hmm. and that for most of us living with a disability that middle ground of living a normal life is very much what we actually try to do yes Would, would you agree with that comment that she makes oh I would absolutely agree with it uh Whatever one is, gender, race, nationality, disability, sexual orientation, whatever one is, is with one every day. And it's it's easy shorthand, but absolutely unfair shorthand to limit that experience to one aspect. Um, so, yes, I, I absolutely agree with her. Do you think that, that comes out of the the publishing industry as a whole? that because that is the way that people without much knowledge of disability see us, that it's how we become reflected in the literature, the art, mm-hmm. that it's meant, after all, to represent life. You know, when I began as a creative writer, someone said something that I wanted to deny so badly, and I knew I couldn't. The person said, you know, for publishers, your book is a box full of words, and their job is to make money from that box. Now, that's a little crass, but it's true. I mean, a publisher can't be in business if things don't sell and they don't make money. And I think because we have so many reinforced stereotypes, I think that it's hard for a publisher to say that this box of words that is so different is going to sell, that people are going to want to buy this. Now, I'm seeing some change in this. I'm seeing some uh, better trends with at least trying to include some indigenous and uh, people of color and other literature that, that, that promotes minority voices. But even that, I don't hear very much promoting disability voices. Uh, disability seems to not be included very often with other minorities. And that's a little bit discouraging uh, to to realize that. However, I think we are going in the right direction. The other thing I would say about publishing is, and I believe this is one reason why we don't have more uh, people, writers with disabilities who are publishing, there are a lot of barriers that are there. You know, for deaf people, it's it who are born deaf. You know, English isn't their first language, so just writing in English or any any spoken language is a huge barrier. For someone who's visually impaired, there are a lot of visual uh, and technological barriers involved in publishing. That unless you have a, an iron will and or a really good uh, support team behind you are extremely discouraging to you to try to get your works published uh, on a level playing field. But I think publishers could do, and I hope they will be doing, a lot more to to work, again, as catalysts in, in, in promoting minority voices, including literature. It's an interesting thought. And as you indicated yourself, I've also seen some 
slow, subtle shifts in the awareness of the publishing industry, be it the traditional publishing industry, the hybrid publishers, and even within self-publishing, although I think self-publishing does offer us an option to get our stories out into the world without as many of the barriers. But there are still a number of barriers that do exist um, mm -hmm. in, in, in terms of even self-publishing. There's been a lot of discussion recently in the world of publishing, talking about books being mirrors and windows. And to me, what that means is that they are windows into the experiences of others, but also mirrors in which we see our own lived experiences reflected. How do you think that then plays out in terms of writers, readers, persons living with a disability? You know, I thought a lot about this question because I, I actually had not heard the windows and mirrors uh, discussion, but I, I love it and it's, it's very true. You know, disability activists say disability, the group you can become a member of any time. And of course, that sounds a little uh, a little morbid, but, you know, one false step and someone can be paralyzed or have some situation or one wrong place in the war. Someone can lose their vision or their hearing. It's true. And I think that the uniqueness to disability literature, you know, I can read I can read James Baldwin. Uh, you know, for the rest of my life, but I'm never going to be black. Or I could read uh, Elif Shafak and never be Turkish. Uh, but I can read about blindness or deafness or other forms of disability, mental illness. And I think the reaction in society when they read about some of these things is, oh my goodness, it could happen to me. What would happen if it happened to me? And so they feel very uncomfortable looking through that window and maybe accidentally seeing their own face in the mirror and saying, what if, what if, what if? And so there's a little bit of a fear factor there that you don't find in ethnic or racial or uh, other literature that maybe constrains a little bit some of the readership and some of the publishing of that literature, whether it's looking in the window or seeing your own face in the mirror. That's an interesting perspective. I, I've heard recently, I, I've heard people referring to the TAB population, which mm -hmm. is the temporarily able-bodied population. But I've never really thought of that in terms of the mirrors, windows metaphor in literature. But yeah, that's a very interesting perspective that perhaps there is an element of a barrier that comes up because, yes, that might be me one day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting one to think about. So I think I need to reflect on that one a little bit further. So I'm not going to go into that in any more depth. Rather, I want to take a slight step to the side and maybe ask if you were to be giving advice to authors, mm -hmm. 
wanting to write about the topic of disability, mm -hmm. to reflect characters with disabilities in their books, what advice would you give them? Well, I would have almost mirror image advice, since we're talking about windows and mirrors. I would have almost mirror image advice for writers with disabilities and writers without disabilities. For the writers without disabilities who want to portray and include, first of all, I would say, regardless of, of what they're writing, I'm going to assume good intent. And I'm going to say thank you for doing that. But I'm going to definitely say, make sure you do more research and more interaction with the people you're portraying than what you may already have. Uh, obviously, if someone is a CODA child of deaf adult, I mean, they're gonna be able to write about deaf adults and without having to have more interaction. But if someone, you know, typical person who has very limited disability experience wants to write about that, they owe it to their own art as well as to the people they're representing to really speak to some people really ask some tough questions, uh, not just read about it, because what they may read about may be from other people without disabilities who, again, have had limited experience. Interact. And if it's not comfortable, use that in what you're writing. Find out, you know, what, what is it about this? And then how can you, how can you improve this? Uh, in the book that, with best intent, that I mentioned about the, the family with the genetic disabilities, I dealt with two disabilities uh, that I do not have, nor have I had very much interaction with, primarily Huntington's disease and deafness. Uh, but as I wrote the book, I consulted with uh, someone who was very involved in the Huntington's community, and I consulted with uh, someone who became a friend who was deaf. And after I had the manuscript ready, I had these people read the book and say, is there anything I need to change? Make sure you have those beta readers who are from the group you represent and respect what they have to say. Um, that doesn't mean you have to change everything just because they say so. I mean, if they say, oh, I can't believe that Jeff shot Paul, he wouldn't do that. Well, you can think about that, but that doesn't really have to do with disability. But if Jeff has a disability, and say he was blind, and they say, you know, Jeff talks here about a Braille typewriter. We don't use that word. We say Braille writer. Please change that. Now, for writers with disabilities, uh, again, I said I have sort of mirror image advice. The temptation is, as a person with disability, to write about your own experience and say, I know about this because I've lived it, and this is true. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's, there's nothing at all wrong with that. But, um, you know, I mentioned earlier very briefly uh, the Turkish writer Elif Shafak, S-H-A-F-A-K, current female Turkish writer. She does some wonderful talks about the power of imagination. Um, and she talks about the fact just because she's a Turkish writer, uh, she got some criticism of making some main characters in her books who were American or Norwegian or, you know, a researcher, not an artist. And she said, the power of imagination is limitless, and I have the right to use my imagination and to portray people that, you know, she had lived in some of these countries. She had worked there. She had had experience. So she wasn't just reaching out without knowing about what she was writing about, but she was being politically criticized as a Turkish woman writing about these other, these other people. 
as a person with disability, use more imagination. It's fine to include your experience. And it's, it's wonderful to have that basis of knowledge that you have with anything else, with your gender, with your nationality, with your age. All that is wonderful. But as a writer, part of the art is adding that spin to it. So just because you, perhaps, um, just thinking off the top of my head, just because you yourself were rejected from a taxi because you had a service animal, doesn't mean you have to put that in a book. However, uh, it could be, although this may never have happened to you, that there was a really comic aspect to it. Say the dog already jumped in the taxi and the driver, uh, not in reality, but you think, of, what, if, what if the dog just jumps in anyway? And what if I'm like, well, my dog's already in there. So you can take a spin on something that you have had in your life. So use imaginations. I, I, one criticism that I have of a lot of disability literature is it reads too autobiographical. There, there's a place for autobiography. Absolutely, there is. And there's a place for I overcame this and this was hard for me. But if you're talking about fiction and you're talking about literature, make sure that that place is told in a way that, again, that box of words is going to be something that people are going to want to buy and want to spend time with um, and realize as an artist that it's not not only about you. This is about your place as an artist and the readers that you respect and cherish to tell them something, whether it's about you or not, but something that they can keep, something that they can empathize with, but they can also kind of grow with. Uh, so that would be my advice to both sides of, of the writing world. Thank you. Some very useful words there. What advice then would you have for publishers who are wanting to look at trying to make their, their offerings, the, the books that they release, more inclusive, and well, particularly in terms of disability? Yeah. Um, publishers, I would say, you know, read and market with an open mind. And if something seems unique and seems like something you haven't seen before, say someone who is, who has a disability, but who is writing realistically and not in terms of these tropes, these, these symbols, you've got a lot of marketing power and many things that are unique are going to have an audience that you don't even know about. You know, the man who wrote the uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul series of books went to publisher after publisher after publisher and people said, oh, nobody wants that because it's just nobody's done that. So nobody wants that. Don't assume that. Um, and I would also encourage publishers to make their platforms and make their submission process a little more accessible for the non-visual audience and a little less uh, perhaps specific. Uh, for example, you know, whether who cares whether it's in 10 font versus 12 font, or who cares whether it's single space versus space and a half. Um, a publisher, if they're interested in that, it's one flick of a of a mouse and you change that so you can read it. Uh, which isn't to say poor little blind writers can't do these things, but it is to say take down some of the barriers of, of, of the websites and the ways that people can submit a little more easily. 
Thank you. And hopefully we can get that word out to people in the publishing industry for them to think about. <laughs> Elizabeth, if people would like to find your books, if they'd like to find out a little more about you, how can they contact you and find your books? Mm -hmm. uh, very simply, um, if you Google the Lyra, L-Y-R-A, the Lyra and the Cross, uh, in quotes, it will pull up my author page. And you will see that published book, a little bit of uh, autobiographical information. Um, and uh, I'll just say once here, but you can include it if you want in the notes. But my email is I am Antigone. It's all one word. I am Antigone at att.net. And I am happy to answer people's questions. Um, you know, if you want to leave a review for the Lyra and the Cross, I would love that. And I will certainly keep Lois updated about, uh, you know, my, my, my future publishing. And I, I just want to encourage anyone who does want to write. I will tell you, and I said, you know, I'd like to write my fourth and final long manuscript. Writing a full-length book, you know, a book that's 70 to 100,000 words, it's not a walk in the park. It's not even a, a sprint in the woods. It is a marathon. It takes discipline. It takes organization. It takes determination. It's lonely. It's it's a hard thing because nothing is coming to you. You're, you're not getting anything out of this until it's done. And even when it's done, there's no guarantee. It's a marathon. It's something that that is something that you want to plan for before you do it and know that this is not going to be a matter of days or weeks or months. It'll probably be years. And ask yourself, is what I have to say, is the value and the impact of what I want to say worth that very long and very patient and very steady, determined course? Or is there another way I want to do this? Uh, but if you, the answer is yes, don't give up keep going. And something that I've said to myself is even if these two manuscripts right now are not published, they're finished, they're there. And if something were to happen to me immediately, that I were no longer able to publish these, or I were no longer on this earth, I have this supreme satisfaction of knowing that I have written this, and that this will go on beyond me in one way or another. Um, I love... Uh, uh, there's there's a Southern writer, and just at this very moment, I'm ashamed her name is 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 escaping me. Uh, but she would write uh, some amazing literature, and in some of her letters, she said, "I wrote it, and God said that's your job. The rest of it is my job." And that's not necessarily true. You have to do a lot of certain promotion and trying to get things together. But nonetheless, the fact of having written something and accomplished something. And doing it is is such an amazing, amazing deed that you feel good about it the rest of your life. So I just I would encourage people count the cost, decide whether you want to do it. But once you've decided to do it, go for it. Indeed, and I think that there are a number of people who are writing or have written books who have probably been nodding along in absolute agreement, including myself. <laughs> Elizabeth, thank you for sharing those thoughts. As a final question, 
what would you feel it has been one attribute, one thing that has really helped you to be successful in your life? Well, this probably won't surprise you, Lois, because we've, you know, we've had talks uh, many through, throughout the years, which I've loved our talks. But probably the one factor of, so to say, success, or at least of going on is, is my, well, I'm going to split it into two, my curiosity and my faith. I'm very curious about the world. And I've, my, my own little uh, phrase that I say is there's never, there's never a bad subject. There's just a bad journalist. Uh, you can find interest in almost anything that you discover, but you have to dig and find it. But my faith is there that there is that there. Even if I don't see it immediately, uh, it, it, it's, I can find it. And that faith, be it self-confidence or confidence spiritually that this is possible, has really accompanied me. But you know, going along with that, um, again, the book that I wrote talking about faith and friendship, uh, I should say the book that I published, the book that the novel that I have yet to publish talking about genetics and fears and family, and the journal that I've edited talking about relations with Soviets. I don't write about anything that I don't feel is critically important and that I feel that I'm the only one perhaps who can really write about this in the way I'm going to write about it. So there's a certain amount of faith in, in the writing process that what I have to say is important and the right people are going to get this. So it's, it's, really, it's really curiosity and faith. And I, I wish that to anyone who is working on any type of creative endeavor, that both of those things truly, truly help you. They're kind of the oil in your wheels. Thank you, Elizabeth. And thank you for sharing your thoughts on literature and disability, your thoughts and some of the, your own writing with us. It has been really fantastic to chat to you today. And thank you for joining us on A Different Way of Seeing. I just wanted to add a quick note to say that you'll find the books mentioned by Elizabeth and the speech that she references are both listed in the show notes. So take a look if you'd like to find out more. A final request from me to please rate or review the podcast if you enjoy what we're doing. It really does help us to reach other listeners who might be interested in a different way of seeing. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to A Different Way of Seeing. We'd love to connect with you. So find Lois at loisstrachen.com or Facebook, Lois Strachen Speaker. This podcast was edited by Craig Strachen using Hindenburg Pro. Hindenburg, it's all about the story. The credits are done at Naledi Media. Naledi Media, all your vocal needs under one roof. Read by Charlie Gassi. That's it for now. Thank you for joining us and see you next time when we bring you into the world of seeing differently.